Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 324 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura's talking with Dr. Stephanie Johnson about celebrating uniqueness and belonging in your team. Today's podcast is brought to you by ESQ.marketing, Sweet Process, Text Expander, and Postali. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. So Stephanie, tax day is coming up. It's been extended this year, but that's not an excuse to wait another three or four weeks to try to get your things organized. Your accountant will thank you for being prepared, even with the delayed deadline. Do you have any recommendations for ways for lawyers to be prepared for it, not just this year, but maybe on an ongoing basis? Yeah. So I see this so often, unfortunately, you know, as the owner of a small business, you maybe are required to make quarterly payments, right? You file once a year, but maybe some of you have even delayed those. And so it's time to make that big payment for your taxes. And I know way too many lawyers who dread this day and dread that payment simply because they're not prepared. And the good news is you can be prepared. You don't, you don't have to have that scary drop in your chest moment when you see how much you owe, if you just do one very simple planning technique. And I should give props to Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit First. He's also been on the podcast before because his theory, and I agree with it, is super simple in this sense. He says, open up a separate bank account so you don't have the money mingled in with your everyday operating income. And every month, transfer 15% of your revenue into that account. And he goes through a whole explanation in his book, why 15%. He's like, I get it. You might be taxed more or less or all the things, but he basically is like, look, when it all comes out, 15% is a good solid number and you should be fine with that. So if you just simply move that amount of money into your tax account every month consistently, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and happy when it's time to pay your taxes and you're not freaking out because you have an account sitting right there ready to do just that. I think that's really smart. It's an even simple number that you can stick with every single month. Don't try to overcomplicate it and say, okay, well, you know, this quarter I made so much more and so I should save, you know, 25% or something like that. The idea here is to give you this baseline of you're being proactive about setting aside money and then it's there for you to write that check or make that payment on a quarterly basis. But you're absolutely right. And this is one of those things no one prepares you for as a business owner. You don't take a class on it in college. And then all of a sudden you're responsible for these somewhat complicated tax situations. And it's definitely one you want to either fix if you're not doing it already or start off on the right foot with a system you can keep up with every single month. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be so happy and you're going to thank yourself when you get that bill and you just have this money sitting there and you're like, yep, you know what? I'm ready and I can pay it. If there's money left over, even better because now that's just gravy. But when we say take this advice seriously, I have a friend 
who is a lawyer and does tax law. And he makes most of his business representing lawyers who have not prepared and have gotten behind with the IRS and are in trouble with the IRS. Almost his entire practice is based on representing lawyers in these situations. This is really true for folks who do contingency fee practices, because I think you guys get those big hits. You're excited and maybe it's been a while since you've gotten paid. And so you feel like, oh, there'll be another big hit by the time the tax bill comes. That's an easy trap to get yourself into. And trust us, just avoid it. Do this simple planning technique and everybody will be so much happier when you have to pay those bills. I love that you mentioned Profit First too. It's a great book for getting you to think about your tax perspective. And also one of the things I found most helpful from there are his bandwidths around where your expenses should be as a percentage of your revenue based on how much revenue your business has overall, because it's so easy to overexpense yourself. And then that is where I think lawyers end up not paying themselves anything. So they're paying their team, they're paying for the software they need. But if you're not thinking about paying yourself too, and have that at the very end of like, well, if I have money left over, I can pay myself. That's another dangerous trap to get into as well. So Profit First is just a great book to start with and read through. Yeah. And I think we had them on episode 205. So way back, but if you haven't checked out that episode, it's a good one. Yeah, the advice is still good and still relevant. So now we have my conversation with Stephanie. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Stephanie Johnson. I am a professor of management at the University of Colorado in Boulder's Lead School of Business and the author of the new book, Inclusify. Let's dive in right there. Can you give us sort of a general definition of what you mean by the concept of Inclusify? The idea behind the book is based on the fact that humans all have these two basic and essential human needs and everyone has them. And to feel included, we need to satisfy those two needs. So it's the need to be your unique and authentic self, so uniqueness. And we also have the need to belong, which is the idea that we want to feel accepted and valued and really like part of the team. And so inclusifying is when leaders create an environment, and leaders can be anyone, a formal leadership role or can just be any of our individual contributions, but really trying to foster an environment where people can achieve both of those goals of being on a team where they really feel like they belong while not having to give up large aspects of their identity in order to do so. Great. That definitely helps set a good foundation for all the things we're going to talk about. I know that we often think about belonging in the context of human psychology, both within like your family or within your friend or social network. How important is belonging really in the context of work in 2021? I mean, to me, it's huge. I think if you can think of an instance in your life, which we probably all have, where you didn't feel like you belonged, it's a horrible feeling, especially when the people around you have that belonging feeling going on and you don't. I think it makes people experience pain. Like there was one study that showed that that feeling of being excluded or not being accepted triggers the same area of your brain that lights up when you're experiencing physical pain. So when I say it's painful, like it is painful. It causes you to feel 
actual pain. And what that means is that people don't always want to stay in situations where they feel that way. So we see higher turnover rates among people who don't feel like they belong. Because if you're not part of the team, the only reason to stay with the organization is purely transactional, which means if any other organization offers you a better gig or there's some reason for you to leave, like you can easily leave without having that feeling of you're giving up part of a group that's really important to you. Is there a sense that these kinds of issues ever come up to the companies that may be experiencing the high turnover? I mean, I would think if you're not comfortable, if you don't feel like you belong and you don't feel like your voice is respected or heard, you're probably not going to bring that up on the exit interview either. I mean, maybe, but I'm just sort of curious, are leaders and businesses becoming more aware of this or thinking this could be a possible reason behind turnover or even employee disengagement? Yeah, I think so. So in 2019, the biggest workplace trend was belonging. If you look through headlines and Medium and the Washington Post, there's many stories on, you know, first there was diversity, then there was inclusion, and now everyone wants you to feel like you belong. So I think folks were getting it back in 2019, and quite a few companies changed their diversity and inclusion function to be diversity and inclusion and belonging. For example, LinkedIn makes that part of their values, diversity, inclusion, belonging. I did a course for them on how to build a diversity, inclusion, and belonging program, DIBS. So I think they get it. In 2019, there was like a big shift in that. And I'm not saying that that has gone away. Like, obviously, we've had a lot of other things on our mind the last year. But what I really realized in writing Inclusify is, you know, the belonging part is really only half of the equation. So I can try to make everyone feel like they belong by creating a really strong culture fit where everyone is kind of encouraged to be the same. So we create this cohesive team, but that's actually not inclusion. That's belonging. Inclusion really only happens when people feel that they can belong, that great feeling of being accepted while still being themselves. Otherwise, it's just masking or covering or fitting in. And what we really want to do is be able to fit together. Right. Yeah. It feels like the other buzzword of late in hiring and in team building and employee engagement is this concept of company culture, right? There's been all these studies about how people can value that more than their paycheck or more than the perks of the job. But it seems like there's also the potential to build a company culture that is very like-minded. So to hire other people who think like you, look like you, talk like you, because it because it's almost like an instant, oh, well, they'll fit in with the culture we already have. So how do you recommend balancing that line of allowing and celebrating uniqueness while also making sure that you are building a healthy and positive work culture? I mean, it's actually like a strategy, right? I think since the, I think they say like the PayPal mafia in Silicon Valley, kind of the original culture fit folks who were like, we want to hire people who you want to have a beer with is kind of a attitude. And if you do, that's great because that makes going to work fun, right? Like you get to be around like-minded people who you'd actually want to hang out with. A couple of problems with that is one, you're really missing out on diversity of thought and innovation. If you're trying to get a bunch of people who truly like your goal is to get people who think like you, what does that do for innovation and bringing in different perspectives? It causes huge blind spots where there's people who don't have the different perspectives that you might need to, you know, weather a storm or deal with a crisis. Like I think we saw this a ton 
amidst COVID of companies that just weren't flexible and adaptable enough to quickly make changes that they needed to survive. Whereas companies that had more diversity in terms of perspectives and background, and maybe even product lines, were better able to pivot and make it through the storm, I guess. We're not through it, but you know, in theory. And then the other half is there's people in your organization who are pretending to belong. They made it through the interview. You know, they have been able to fit in, even if they're leaving parts of themselves at home. And for those folks, I mean, you're not getting their unique perspectives, which is a waste, but you're also creating this added pressure for them where their cognitive resources are always slightly focused on something else. And that's just that task of fitting in and, you know, trying to be accepted. So at the end of the day, I think that culture fit, it sounds it like it makes sense. And I think people like it. And I wouldn't argue that when you're trying to hire people, you should consider that they have the same core values that you have. But if you're really hiring people you want to have a beer with, I think you're kind of missing the point. That's really key there. And you talk about these people who, you know, you might have to acknowledge that there are people in your organization that don't feel like they belong. And there's obviously a lot of negative impacts, both for them and for the company in doing that. Are there signals that you can kind of pick up on that that might be happening in your organization or things you can be mindful of to kind of prevent that from happening in the first place? Because it feels like that's the sort of thing where if a person is doing that, they feel pressure to do that for one reason or another. They've picked up on a cue. They're just not sure if this is, you know, they can really celebrate this individual aspect of themselves. They're not sure if it could impede their performance or promotions or just general acceptance by the team. So how do you start to do that authentically to kind of create that space for people to not feel like they necessarily have to hide certain things? There's so much there. So first, how would you know, right, if people are feeling like they don't belong? And you, know, you can do surveys like inclusion, engagement type surveys, or even look at things like turnover and promotion rates. And what you're looking for is often like an easy way to look is, are there outliers of people who most people report a four, we feel like we belong. And then there's some people who might have a one or a two. And then if you want to consider diversity in that, I would consider stratifying those data by race and gender, because if you have the people who don't belong, who are reporting the ones, the people who are leaving are women and people of color or women of color, then I think that's a good signal that there's there's something that you need to do to try to pivot that and try to make sure that your culture is one that's supporting everyone equally in terms of their uniqueness and belonging. But then once you realize that, what do you do, right? And, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of starting to change the culture in a way that is demonstrating role modeling difference. Like maybe as a leader, you start sharing pieces of yourself. You can engage in empathetic conversations where you're trying to really understand people's different perspectives. You can try to reshape the way that you structure meetings in a way that is really supporting the idea that you want different perspectives. And then hopefully you actually use those different perspectives. Otherwise people catch on pretty quickly that you're just asking. Those are just a few kind of 
first basic steps, but you know, there's a lot, there's so much you can do, but first I think it is realizing that there's not a problem, but that there's more opportunity to try to improve your organization and its culture by enhancing belonging. And leading by example is such an important part of that. We're going to take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about inclusifying. Support for today's episode comes from ESQ.marketing, an agency that provides successful SEO strategies for every stage of your practice. You will work with experts in legal marketing. All of their intense focus is on helping attorneys generate more clients and cases from the internet. They don't work with anyone else. You'll breathe easy with low-risk, month-to-month contracts. There are no long-term commitments. ESQ Marketing earns the right to work for your firm each and every month. Best of all, you'll get direct access to the person working on your account. No account managers to deal with. No lost in translation with your requests. To see if you're a fit, visit esq.marketing forward slash lawyerist to get started. Support for today's episode comes from Sweet Process. Sweet Process is software that enables companies to have a central place for all their procedures, processes, and policies. It makes it easy for management, managers, and their ground-level employees to collaborate on and continuously improve these documents together. Sweet Process becomes the one source of truth, the one place where every employee, regardless of their role or team in the company, can go to find information on how work is done. Sweet Process makes it easy to train new and existing employees because your documented procedures are already in Sweet Process. So, when employees are getting tasks done, the instructions are right in front of them. Sweet Process offers a 14-day free trial, but by using our dedicated sign-up link, you can extend that to 28 days. Just visit www.sweetprocess.com forward slash lawyerist to sign up now. No credit card is required. Support for today's broadcast comes from Text Expander. Work smarter, not harder, with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. With just a few keystrokes, Text Expander keeps you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. Speed through emails, expand forms with fill in the blank fields using a quick abbreviation. Use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Get your message right every time by expanding content that corrects your spelling and keeps your language consistent with a few keystrokes. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Support for today's broadcast comes from Postali. Building the next powerhouse law firm takes hard work and an entrepreneurial spirit. But some skills escape even the savviest of attorneys. To reach new heights in your legal practice, you need a genuine marketing partner, one that tells you where you are now and where your firm could go. Postali works with law firms nationwide, and their trademarked marketing fiduciary services sets them apart from every other vendor that's cold calling or flooding your inbox. Whether it's informal guidance about things you can do today or a big-picture approach to law firm expansion, Postali is perfect for business-minded attorneys with an eye on the future. No matter where you are in your journey, Postali is the full-service, strategic marketing partner that grows with your firm. To learn more about the services Postali offers, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist and reach out for a free consultation. 
Okay, so one of the things that really jumped out to me in your book, and it was like, as soon as you started giving examples, I was like, oh yeah, you can think of so many examples of how this has happened to you, is when people get mistaken for not being part of the group because of their gender, their skin color, whatever it is, they get mistaken for not belonging in that room. Oh, you're not allowed to be here, or they get mistaken for a member of staff or things like that. And that really was really prominent for me in reading this book of how dangerous that can be and how awkward it also makes the other person feel because you might not even realize that you have done this to other people because they're not really likely to bring it to bring it up to you. It's usually such an embarrassing situation. So are, are there kind of tips on how this can emerge or like most common patterns of doing this and how we can be mindful of not doing it ourselves or even best practices of if it does happen to you when you're mistaken for not being part of the group because of someone's perception of you, how do you really handle that situation? Does it really, I guess what I'm trying to say is, does it fall to the person who's been mistaken to correct that mistake or call it out? So have you ever experienced this in your work? I have, thankfully not at this job, but when I first started my PhD program, I was the youngest person in the program and I was one of the only women and I just felt like I constantly had to prove that I belonged there. Like, no, I got into this program. Like, no, I'm not in the wrong room. I know the master's students are across the hall or the senior college, you know, English classes across the hall. No, I'm actually supposed to be in this room. And I never, until I read that in your book, I was like, yeah, that's definitely happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to so many people in so many different ways. And in the moment, you're just like, I know I felt the pressure of my face flaming, like, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. Now everyone in the classroom is looking at me and I do have to prove that I belong here. I have to pull out my schedule or I have to say, no, I am in this program. And I didn't want to say anything else about it, right? Because it's just like, man, this is my this is my first introduction to this professor, to this department, to this entire classroom. And it started in such an awkward way. Now I want to fade into the background. I'm not going to call any more attention to it. For sure. And I think that's how people feel so often. So I think it happens a lot to women who may be underrepresented. And I think probably younger looking women where people think you're an administrative assistant or something like that rather than like a lawyer. And, you know, I think it is really devastating because it's sending you this message of you don't belong, you don't fit in, you're not typical and normal. And it's like an added burden of caring. And like, as I, you know, it's happened to me and half the time, you know, my responses have ranged from, are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) To I'm not going to say anything. I'm actually just going to take your glass and walk away and put it down because I don't want to tell you that I'm not the serving staff today. And for women of color often, or people of color, it's being mistaken for the only other person of color in the room or the only other woman, like I, on more than one occasion have been called one of the women instructors names in my college and in my university. And for one, if you're mistaken for another person of color, I think it's like, wow, you really do think we all look the same. Like you really have no idea who I am. But when you're mistaken also, not just for a different person of color, but maybe for someone in a lower status role, I think it is saying people like you don't really deserve this role or shouldn't be in this role. And for my college, uh, which is amazing. I love my university and my college, but like any business school, there's just not a lot of women. And so 
There's a lot of women staff and in fact, a fair number of women instructors. But if you get to, you know, research professors, there's not a lot. And so it's easy if you're just going to run the numbers to mistake a woman for one of these other roles, which is, I think, sending a harsh message. And oftentimes when I've come and said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually not a graduate student. I'm an associate professor. (laughs) I've been your colleague for 10 years. People are like, oh, you should be flattered that we think, you know, that you look so young that we're calling you an, a student. And I'm like, eh, not really. I don't really feel flattered, but that's even more sexist that you think I would be flattered by your mistake. Exactly. <laughs> but I've often tried to, you know, just joke about it, make it lighthearted so I don't have to make them feel uncomfortable and make myself feel uncomfortable. I don't think that's the best route. You know, I think it's better just to be authentic and say, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about a graduate student, but I am, yeah, I'm a professor, I'm Stephanie. And that's unfortunate that you have mistaken me in, you know, in a lot of ways that can be really hurtful for people, but I will admit that is so exhausting to do that. There's days where I can do that and can approach, maybe it's that situation or another one where someone's engaged in a microaggression with saying like, can you tell me more about why you say that? You know, like trying to be empathetic. I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, but I wonder if you can understand how I feel. And then there's days where I'm just like, I just can't do it. So the reason I mentioned that is there is a lot of opportunity for others who are observing to step in in those situations when they see it. Now everyone's aware of it. Everyone listening to your podcast is like, oh, this happens. And whether you're also a woman or a person of color or a woman of color, and it happens to you, or you're a white guy, and it hasn't happened to you, but you've seen it happen, it's way easier for you to step in and say, are you referring to Dr. Briggs? She's not a student. She's not an undergrad. And maybe even telling them this can actually be really insulting for women and women of color and people of color who are often mistaken for the serving staff or, you know, it happens in law firms a ton where there's female lawyers and partners who are mistaken for serving staff or cleaning staff. There was a study on women lawyers and the number of times they're mistaken for clerks and cleaning staff and is a lot. On the flip side, that just really doesn't happen to white men. And so over time, I think it's those little constant attacks. I think it's an African proverb. It's not the lions that'll get you. It's the mosquitoes. It's like these little things that continually undermine you And they're small, so you can't really, it's hard to go seek social support and say, I come home and tell my partner, hey, you're not going to believe what happened today. Someone asked me if I was a graduate student. It's really hard to come and seek support for that. Whereas if someone just made like a super shocking, harassing comment, you would probably go to HR, but it's these little things. They just pick at you all the time and become difficult, I think, to address. So if you think of inclusion and belonging, there's things that we can all be doing as a team to make sure that doesn't happen. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm probably doing this, get to know your people, get to know your colleagues, take the time to have coffee with someone or Zoom happy hour with someone, because it's really hard to do that when you actually know them. But the reality is the reason you're doing that is you don't even know them. You haven't taken the time because they're not the same as you. And so you're not going out of your way to actually learn anything about them that would preclude you from mistaking them from an admin or cleaning staff. That is so important because 
I think so many of us can think of examples when it's happened to us. And then you can even think about, well, even if I am in a position of privilege by being a white woman, can I even imagine how many times that's happened to other people who kind of have multiple things that others are misinterpreting about them? And so I think that idea of it being a team approach and you being willing to speak up about it, I definitely would feel more comfortable calling out someone else doing that to another person than I would calling out the person who did it to me, right? I would definitely appreciate if someone else went to like pull the awkwardness and the embarrassment off of me in that moment and just be like, yeah, that's not right. What, you know, why did you make that mistake? Cause why would you think that particular thing? I think it's just so helpful to be aware that these things happen and to think about what role do you play in it? Even if you're not the one that's doing it or how can you help change that culture within the group or the organization to make sure that that doesn't become a repeated thing? And if you're the one who's had it done to you, well, how do you prevent that for yourself and also for other people in a similar situation? It's kind of like that idea of be the change. We talked about academia. The law is another place where there's a lot of cultural norms. It's very much based on, you know, these established traditions of hierarchies and who's qualified and who isn't. If you're working in those kinds of groups or industries and you know that it's going to be harder to implement change than it might be in, say, maybe like a startup or something where there's constant change and a lot of push for innovation and people trying to be on the cutting edge of doing all the right things. What do you recommend that someone working in those sorts of industries do to implement the change or just know that you're up against maybe a little bit more there? You're right on that it can be more difficult in these industries that have such long histories of pre-established norms and they're not necessarily known for their innovativeness, right? And maybe the average tenure is longer, so maybe you have folks who are a little older, so they haven't been exposed to these kinds of ideas as long. Like if you think of startups and tech, it's kind of dominated by younger folks who tend, to, and this isn't a stereotype, but they tend to be more inclusive because they grew up in an environment where inclusion was more expected. Gen Zers are growing up in a very minority majority culture. Like they're used to being around people who are different and they're more, I think, open-minded. You know, I'm a professor. I see people every year, like I always get older, but they always are kind of the same. So I kind of get to see how people change. And this generation is certainly more open to that kind of thing. It's a little harder when you're talking about law, for example, the law firm structure of partner and senior partners and stuff like that. How do they change? I think it's like, first you have to decide you want to change and that's a challenge. Do people want to change? They probably think the way they're doing things is fine. And I don't know that it, that it's going to be sustainable because things like the partnership model of having to bill 60 hours or more than, I don't even know, like I've heard ridiculous statistics in order to make partner. And then people treat you horribly up until you get to invest in that company or firm forever. Millennials just aren't doing that. There's actually a huge crisis in partnership firms like law and accounting where they're like, why would I want to work with you forever? You've just been awful to me. And I don't know that I want to invest all of my salary and all my money, everything tied up in this one organization that I'm not even sure I really like. So I think they're going to have to change if they want to stay alive. I think the question is, do you want to be the firm that makes this change a little too late? 
or do you want to be one of the firms that's on the cutting edge and actually leading the pack? Such good stuff. There's so many great ideas and concepts. And I just love the stories that you told in the book because they really painted a picture of what these things look like. It really broke down some of these bigger terms or these things that we hear about in studies, but made it very real. And I think that's what I'm taking away from this episode is how real this can be for you as a leader, how real this can be for your organization, and also just for employees too. Like what role do you play in in this and how do you think about this when you're deciding what company to work with? Because I think it's just becoming more and more front and center that it's something all of us are paying attention to. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure to get to talk to you about your thought leadership. Where can our listeners go to learn a little bit more about your work? Oh, yes. Thank you. First of all, I really enjoyed our conversation and thanks for your great questions. If people want to know more, they can look for my book, which is called Inclusify. There's a website, inclusifybook.com, but you can also find it anywhere books are sold. And then my website, which has tons of free resources and tools that you can use to work on these skills is at drdrstefjohnson.com. And same thing for social media. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn at Dr. Steph Johnson. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.